welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silkenhead in Edinburgh, joined as always by Frank Cagliano. How are you doing, Frank? It's been a while since we had a chance to do a show. I'm great, David. Thank you very much. And one reason why we haven't done a show in a little while is because you were in the United States. Yes, I hey. went back to the homeland for the first time since before the pandemic uh, for a conference and for, for seeing a bit of family. Okay, so do you have any reflections? You're kind of like Rip Van Winkle. Well, yes, uh, exactly. Waking up in a different country, country right? I, I was actually... So I was surprised, uh, actually, by by how familiar everything seemed. I was expecting it to be different, and partially because I was visiting places that I had spent significant time in as a, and other points in my life. Um, actually, how how little things had had changed, um, and and you know I visited New York City, which obviously was the, uh, an epicenter of the pandemic, and and was had some uh, you know really tragic scenes a couple of years ago. New York City seemed like it just like had nothing to change since before the pandemic. Um, so maybe things are returning to normal and I just caught it at an interesting moment. Uh, but uh, yeah, I was actually surprised going back that, that I was not, there was not more culture shock. Uh, yeah. What's, what's in your what, experience? Was it, was it good to be home? It Did was you... good to be home. Uh, I was at, a, you know, uh, I was there long enough to that, that I got over my jet lag getting there and just in time to get jet lag coming back. So, um, yeah, it was good. It was good. good. And it was good to go to a conference in person and, and see some friends I hadn't seen in years. And, uh, yeah, it was good, you know, good times. How was the academic con? Cause I haven't been to an academic conference yet on either side oh. of the Atlantic, actually. Uh, face to face one. Yeah, no, it was good. It was slightly slimmed down from, from, uh, what conference did you attend? It was Society of Civil War Historians, which, which has held every other year. Uh, and it was in Philadelphia, and the conference organizers did a great job. The panels were great. Saw some really good scholarship. Some of the panels were ones that had been planned for two years ago, and so there's an interesting, you know, here's what we thought we were going to do, and here's where we actually are, and they were going to present preliminary ideas, and here's finished ideas, but, you know. Um, yeah, here's my finished book. book. Yeah, the book came out two years ago. <laughs> Let me tell you about what you've already all read, um, that kind of thing. But, uh, yeah, it was, it was a really good conference, and... and uh, it seemed remarkably normal. Did you get a sense at the conference from hearing people share yeah. their work that that scholarship has changed in any way? Has COVID affected the study of the Civil War? Oh, jeez. Uh, not yet. I think. Well, I think there there were there were ways in which you know people's lives were interrupted in the past two years personally, and and I think that's shaped scholarship in a million different ways. Um, and I think people are interested in questions about disease, and I think there was already a movement in the scholarship towards paying more attention to disease in the Civil War. I mean, disease killed as many people as, as the bullets did, uh, if not more than the bullets did. So, so uh, you know, people are paying, I think, more attention. We're paying more attention to the sort of medical aspects of, of the conflict, and uh, it's the whole era, really. Uh, so I think that's you know the the pandemic only reinforced that that trend. So yeah, but it was a fascinating. I, I was really glad I could make the trip, and uh, you know it had been a very long time since I'd gone to an in person conference. So, and, but yeah, strange, strangely normal. So good stuff. Good. Well, actually, you say normal or strangely normal. Mm. That's a good description of the United States. <laughs> <laughs> well, and one of the things, because as you know, I, I was back for the first time in in two plus years in in the spring. Uh, and I spent a little bit longer there than you did. Uh, but one thing that was reassuring to me and, and nice 
And this is at odds with what we're about to discuss. Mm. What I'm about to say is slightly at odds with what we're about to discuss. Uh, but it was nice to be reminded that much of the United States is tens of millions of people leading normal lives. and it, it, Because when you're abroad, the U.S., you only get, we're, we're presented in media, you know, whether it's the mainstream media or social, mm. just the craziness of the United States is in our faces every day. And, and, and it's nice to be reminded it's not as crazy as it seems. That being said, one of the things that happened when I was at the conference in Philadelphia was there was a mass shooting half a mile from where the conference was held. And it was one of three or four mass shootings that weekend. That, that weekend. Uh, which is actually our topic yes, today. Yes, I, I, yes, I, realized, I was trying to transition to our topic. And, no, and I realize my observation is at odds with what we're about to discuss, which is, um, is you know, guns in America. America. And, 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 you know, thinking about, obviously, the Uvalde shooting and the Buffalo shooting were only the two most publicized of, of 250 mass shootings thus far this year. There have been more than one mass shooting a day uh, and more than 18,000 Americans uh, killed with firearms thus far this year. Um, and so we wanted to sort of make sense of that, but specifically to think make sense of gun control uh, legislation uh, or gun rights legislation, I guess is the sort of flip side of that. The Senate right now appears to be on the verge of passing the first uh, significant piece of gun control in 30 years. And whether it's significant or not, we can we can debate that, but there seems to actually be some movement on on at least a few uh restrictions on on gun purchasing and gun ownership um and so we want to sort of make some sense of of the history of gun gun control legislation uh in the united states and its precursors yes and um well there's the the senate deal which appears to have been agreed last weekend although that we don't, haven't seen any legislation yet so there's a draft outline mm. that and and this is important because 10 senators from each party um the democrats and republicans um seem to have reached an agreement on this and of course because of the filibuster rule which mm. we've discussed in the past um, it's crucially important to get to 60 votes. So if they do indeed have, if the 50 Democrats have 10 Republicans with them, then they can they can achieve that threshold for a vote. Uh, so that's important. But of course, we're also expecting imminently a Supreme Court decision, which may upend uh, gun control um, uh, legislation in the United States. So, so there's a lot happening at this particular moment, coinciding with the... Terrible news from Uvalde and Buffalo, but as you said, mm -hmm. rightly, David, you know, those are about the most notorious of a, of a long series of such incidents uh, in recent months. And so, yes, we want to talk about the history. Not necessarily, we've talked about the history of guns in the United States in the past, yeah. previous episodes, so we're really talking about... And we will undoubtedly talk about it more in future episodes. Unfortunately, given, yes, yeah, but, but uh, we want to talk about gun control or gun rights legislation, mm. Um, over the history of the United States, and as you say, it, it's 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 precursors as well in the colonial period. Uh, David, I mean, I, I can talk about the Second Amendment, and a lot of this goes back to the Second Amendment. But you rightly reminded me uh, before we started that you know there there are the Second Amendment is is itself the culmination of a mm. or the product of a culture. Do you want to say a little bit about what what preceded it? Well, so you thinking broadly about about gun control measures. I think they, they actually fall into sort of three categories of 
laws. There, there are laws about the weapons themselves, like weapons about the, the kinds of weapons people can use. There are laws about people, about which people can have access to guns. And there's laws about circumstances, about, about particular ways in which guns can and cannot be wielded. Um, and I think making sense of those distinctions might help sort of sh show some evolution in some of these debates, because I think they're, they're, they're not always the same. Um, I think, you know, one of the things you see in, in the colonial period, uh, and you see this really throughout the, the um, both, in, especially in the South, but across the United States, restrictions about who can own guns and who is allowed to own guns. And one, obviously, the, the restrictions you find uh, starting in Virginia, but in other places, are restrictions on enslaved people owning guns. Um, you see some of this in the 17th century, but you see restrictions on uh, enslaved people owning guns or using guns or having access to guns uh, you know, throughout the, the 18th century, and especially in the 19th century, especially after things like Dred Scott, there are restrictions on that and in restrictions on gun owners saying gun owners, you need to secure your guns to prevent them from being accessed by, by enslaved people. Um, now there are some enslaved people who are using guns and have access to guns, but it's often, um, for things like hunting, there were, there were abilities for some enslaved people to use, uh, firearms. Uh, but but on a fairly limited basis. Yeah, but I, I would make two observations or, or two two just responses mm. to that. One is there's a there is an exception that's quite important, mm. uh, which is in New England, enslaved people can serve in the militia. Oh, okay, yeah. um, and, and militia and, usage is I think important for all this, right? And well, and the militia relates to the Second Amendment, of course. But so so so, but that of course is serving the public good in some way mm. uh, as, as so defined. But, but the rules are, those kind of restrictions are not as strict in New England in, and in the northern colonies in large part because there are fewer enslaved people. So the sure. kind of danger they represent uh, to, to the social order is not as great, even if they're armed. Uh, the other aspect of it during the colonial period that's important is, of course, guns are a crucial part and a crucial element of the trade with indigenous people, mm. but there are occasional attempts to restrict um, whether guns can be traded trade, to, to yes. Native Americans as well. Although they're an important part of the trade because the, one of the things that uh, settlers want or traders want is is Native peoples to, to hunt, and, and and that seems true, you know, in, into the you know into the early Republic and afterwards, the restrictions on Native peoples can you sell them firearms or not and who can sell them firearms is, is an important uh, you know restriction that's put in place a number of treaties that, that involve firearms but sales. I like the distinction you're making about gun laws aren't necessarily I mean we the, the, the in contemporary parlance we talk about gun control usually mm. but but laws about gun ownership fall into these different categories about what you do with guns or what you can and cannot do with guns, what mm. kinds of guns you can, what one can own or firearms or weapons one can own or, and also restricting who, who is worthy mm. of, of gun ownership. That's it. I mean, I think that's important. One of the things all of our listeners I suspect will be familiar with and um, is the second amendment to the, the, the constitution. Um, the, the bill of rights was ratified in 1791. Uh, the second amendment reads, 
a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And uh, we're going to talk about the changing views of this in American law, particularly the changing mm. interpretations of it um, uh, by the Supreme Court over the, over the course, particularly of the 20th century and now the 21st century. But this law, or sorry, this, this amendment was the product in many respects of that militia tradition. Now, the militia is not necessarily benign. We've talked about this mm. in the past. In, in, in southern colonies and later states, the militia was very much about controlling enslaved people. Um, and Indians. And, and Native, Native peoples. Yeah. Yep, that's right. Uh, in the north, it's, it is in northern colonies, it's about um, fighting the French. It's about fighting uh, the Dutch sometimes and indigenous people. But also, it, it, it's the militia's less an institution to control enslaved people because again we're mm. talking about relatively small numbers of enslaved people um, and more about defense and the kind of myth that arises it's not it's not entirely a myth there's an element of truth mm. to it the militia is incredibly important during the American Revolution and one of the things that that is a kind of article of faith in the ideology uh, that was widespread among the supporters of the American Revolution was that standing armies were a danger to liberty and standing armies, that is a professional army supported by the state, so soldiers whose only job is to be soldiers. And the militia is seen as a kind of antidote to this. Mm. And so we get a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. That's the preamble of that very short amendment. But that's really, really important in this, in this uh, amendment or to this amendment uh, in terms of understanding the ideology behind it. So the militia is seen as a kind of counterpoise to the power of the state in order to preserve liberty. The debate over the meaning of the Second Amendment that goes on to this day, and frankly, I, I, one of the, I, I've uh, been cutting back on my Twitter usage in the past month, and um, I'm really happy to have done that. And after the Uvalde shooting, I stayed off Twitter, and I'm really happy I did that. Um, but one of the things that's frustrating in the commentary on, on the gun issue in the United States, but particularly when one views it from outside of the United States. And so I think British commentary is often really poor on mm. this. Is they don't, the understanding, everybody references the Second Amendment, but they don't necessarily understand the Second Amendment. Yeah, sure. And I think that's, it's actually true in the United States, so it's not, it's not just a problem outside of the United States. Uh, but uh, I think the language of the amendment is important, and it breaks down, the two main themes are, or the, sorry, the, the, the single theme that breaks into two, two camps is, is this a collective right or an individual right? And the Supreme Court at different times, as we're going to see over the course of our discussion, has taken very different views on that. If it's a collective right to security, then one can say it's, we have a collective right as a polity, as a group of citizens, uh, as a community to defend ourselves. Mm -hmm. And the Second Amendment protects our right to that collective assertion of, of self-defense. If it's an individual right, which is the current kind of um, interpretation that prevails um, on the Supreme Court and elsewhere in the United States, then it's, I have a right as an individual U.S. citizen to own guns, and frankly, there are, should be relatively few limits on the types and, uh, of guns I can own in order to defend myself. Mm -hmm. And so there are, these, there are competing interpretations of what the Second Amendment Means, means and we see those throughout our yeah. conversation so that's just a little bit about i don't know we don't have to belabor this necessarily much more 
David, I'm really interested in what's going on in the 19th century. Yeah. Because I think we're going to talk a lot about the federal level, but the 19th century, you would have us yes. believe, is an important century. <laughs> so, I, <laughs> so tell us what's going on, because, of course, that's the age of the Wild West yes. and gunfights gun and everything else. Yeah, so, so uh, there aren't that many federal restrictions on gun ownership, but there are a whole raft of state and local restrictions on not only guns, but weapons generally. Uh, and there are a lot of Americans who have a lot of weapons in the 19th century. You know, the, you know, Charles Dickens describes going to the United States and basically seeing everybody is carrying a knife or a gun. Um, and, uh, but every British tourist thinks, thinks that. that. <laughs> yes, to, even today. But, um, you know, it does seem as if, you know, the, the, that, that there are lots of, lots of weapons of various kinds or at least things of, uh, that could be used as weapons floating around. There are some restrictions, though, that are placed very early on in the 19th century by states. And oftentimes the debate is not about the weapon itself or who's carrying it, but how you're carrying it. And this seems to be especially true in the South, where they pass a number of states pass laws restricting concealed weapons. Uh, Kentucky passes one in 1813. Louisiana uh, passes uh, also one in 1813 that restricts concealed weapons. What's the problem with concealed the weapons? Concealed then? weapons, and this is something that you find this in uh, lots of legal writing about it at the time, is it was seen as being dishonorable. Carrying a weapon in the open was seen as manly, whereas carrying a weapon in a concealed fashion seemed cowardly. Uh, the uh, There was a Louisiana Supreme Court decision which said that concealed weapons gave men, quote, secret advantages and led to unmanly assassinations. Whereas if you carry a weapon in open, it said that placed men upon an equality and it excited men to a manly and noble defense of themselves. So the question was not, you know, what weapons you have or who you were, if you're a white man, uh, but how you were carrying the weapons. So... They pass these laws about saying, look, you cannot conceal your guns. If you're going to carry them, you've got to carry them and people have to see them. Um, which I think is very interesting about, about you know, what kinds of weapons people are using. There's an interesting, one of the first times in which the Second Amendment is evoked in court is actually in response to one of these. There's a Georgia law that banned handguns um, on the supposition that handguns were, were basically used for at the time were basically used for dueling or for kind of assassination kinds of things. Uh, and there's a case, uh, Nunn versus uh, State of Georgia in 1846. And the guy who was arrested for carrying a, a handgun said, look, this is a violation of my Second Amendment right to carry a weapon. And the uh, Georgia Supreme Court actually ruled in his favor. They said, look, uh, state cannot prohibit weapons um if and there was in this particular case there was a debate about whether his handgun was concealed or not and the, the court ruled no his gun was not concealed so the conviction was overturned uh because he had a legal right to carry a a weapon openly uh, and so in that case you know the, the debates were about the usage of the weapon and the circumstances in which the weapon is used um more than anything else than the weapon itself. Um, you've got uh, a couple of, of important places where gun rights are restricted pretty heavily. One of the places in which 
states, and again, the South here, there, there tends to be fairly big regional disparities here. One of the times in which gun access is restricted significantly is in the Black Codes passed after Reconstruction, where the Black Codes, just as a reminder, are these laws that are passed in the immediate aftermath of, aftermath of the Civil War and Emancipation. They create a framework to, for making African Americans, which are, who are now no longer enslaved, into second-class people. They're not even citizens, they're, but it, restricting their access to, among other things, firearms. Um, and so there are lots of restrictions placed on who can own guns there that are sort of trying to create a class of people who are armed and class of people who are disarmed. And of course, in the aftermath of the Civil War, there are a lot of guns floating around. Um, one of the interesting things I found, and I found this yesterday, actually just doing research for something else entirely. I was looking, as one does, uh, at the 1867-68 Louisiana Constitutional Convention. And an African-American man, um, a guy by the name of C.C. Antone, who later goes on to become um, lieutenant governor of Louisiana, but who had uh, fought for the Union um, in the Civil War. He introduces an amendment to the Louisiana Constitution that says, and this, this is striking, the military shall be in strict subordination to the civil power. Every citizen has the right to keep and bear arms for the common defense, and their right shall never be questioned. Which is interesting to have, a you know, an African American saying like, "Look, we we need every we need to every citizen has the right to a bear arms, where it makes it an individual right, as opposed to the second. You know, he's taking that Second Amendment framework from the Constitution and putting it in the Louisiana Constitution, but making it the individual right much more explicit. Um, but also, it's interesting you interpret it that way. Now, again, I'm I was unfamiliar with this mm. until. 10 seconds ago yeah. you said it so I don't have expertise here that the the statement that the military will be subordinate to civil power mm. because again one reading of the second amendment is mm. that it, it this collective right of self defense is to protect citizens from a standing army and they, they basically the the overwhelming um force that the, the state can bring to bear mm. and and so one can interpret that as as in and well, it's got a kind of individualistic twist to it. It's very much in keeping with the spirit of the Second Amendment as a collective right. Uh, or would you disagree? Well, but it's it's so it does evoke the common defense, but it also you know it does make it about individuals, and obviously this is happening in the context in which African Americans are being have recently been disarmed by these black codes or attempted to be disarmed by these black codes, but also are suffering from significant terrorism on, on the hands of, of white paramilitary organizations, uh, the Klan and similar kinds of groups. And those groups are armed. And those groups are heavily armed. And, you know, it's in the context in which lots of people not only are armed, but are trained to kill people with arms, right? People who had had experience in the Civil War of of, of not only using guns for hunting or whatever, but for using guns to kill people. Yeah, I mean, there's a debate in American historiography, historiography, excuse mm. me, uh, about the origins of the gun culture. We don't need to go into mm. that in great detail, but one thing that's clear is, so, well, there's a great deal of emphasis on the alleged colonial origins of this, and so mm. we get the kind of, you know, militiamen 
you know, taking his gun to go fight the British and defend liberty yeah. is a kind of archetype in American thinking. Um, the gun culture might not be quite as old as we think because what we really see in your period, particularly after the Civil War, so you've had industrialization is underway, you've had the mass production of firearms for the war, there are just a hell of a lot of guns in the United States yeah. in the latter part of the 19th century. And a lot of men in particular, but not only men, who have a lot of experience using them as a result of their service during the war. And then you act, you, you factor in industrial strife, mm. racial strife. Those latter decades of the 19th mm. century, in fact, they're important, I think, for what we'll see in the 20th century in terms of restrictions. It's a, a, the United States, that kind of gun culture that we associate with the United States, I think is really a product of that, of that particular yeah. period. Although th th there's a kind of claimed lineage that goes back to the 18th century. Would you agree with that? I, I would you look I, well, I think I think it's an evolution and, you know because I, mean, I think there's a couple of things that are going on. Um, you know I think your point about mass production is important. Guns become accessible and cheaper. you know when the, when the, the militiaman grabs his gun, he's got a gun. Right, that right. he uses. That's an all-purpose hunt for deer, fight in the militia. You know, like because he's got one. Because that's all he, you know, can can afford. And it's not terribly accurate. It's not. It doesn't have a long range. And the second thing I think is that you know the, the technology of weapons has changed dramatically. Right, that the uh, you know weapons that are used in the revolution, the weapons that are used in the civil war, um, to a slightly lesser extent. You know, these are hard weapons to use. Um, they, they are they require some skill they require some practice to not only pit your target but to even load the stupid thing it is not easy right and, and you know you have no you don't have the experiences of children picking up revolutionary guns and accidentally shooting people because you can't accidentally shoot somebody in the same way with a with a revolutionary gun they're they are tricky to use they're tricky to load if yeah, they you are, don't store them loaded you don't store them loaded right? Um, speaking of which, one of the some of the restrictions you find about guns in the nineteenth century are actually mostly concerned about the storage of gunpowder. That that you know some communities are worried what's going to happen with gunpowder, and what they're worried about is not the guns; they're actually worried about fire, fire yeah. right? And there's huge restrictions, concerns about fire because fire was a huge problem, and cities burned down regularly, and neighborhoods burned down. So, you know, some of the their concerns are, are less about the person with the gun than the than the you know uh, sack of gunpowder that's used to, to load the gun. Um, you also find uh, in the nineteenth century, as you point out, the, this is the sort of the Wild West era. And the image I think we have of the Wild West is of lots of people carrying lots of guns, which actually isn't necessarily the case. Lots of local communities had restrictions on guns, where you could have the gun if you were roping cattle or you know doing whatever it is you're doing out outside of town but once you came into town lots of communities had restrictions that said you need to surrender your weapons to the sheriff or other law enforcement to to keep the community safe so they don't want gunfights uh, in saloons so, right so if you go to you know some of these dodge cities there are more guns today in dodge, dodge city than there were in the old west because now you can go there and keep your gun with you then you would have had to sur surrender it and if you brought your gun into town that was a signal that you were not abiding by the law Whereas now, you know, uh, there, there aren't those kinds of restrictions. There are lots of local restrictions. 
one of the more important local restrictions, and I'm bringing this up in part because it's going to become relevant soon, um, one of the first restrictions on, on handguns, and one of the more important ones, is the uh, New York law in 1911 called the Sullivan Act, which uh, was passed during the Progressive Era. Lots of, there's lots of restrictions locally on guns in the Progressive Era. And uh, this one prohibited all kinds of weapons like uh, brass knuckles, blackjacks, uh, various kinds of clubs were prohibited by the Sullivan Act, but it also required you to have a license for handguns. And um, it was up to the local licensing authority to, to issue these licenses for handguns. And the way the law was written, it didn't say that the local licensing authority must issue the handguns. It says you may issue the handguns. And so some local authorities have basically determined since 1911 not to issue uh, any permits uh, except in very exceptional cases, including New York City. Um, the reason why I'm bringing this particular law up is this is the one that's actually being challenged in the Supreme Court right now. Um, and, and the expectation is that it'll be overturned. And the expectation is it'll be overturned. So right now, if you're in New York City and you want to carry a handgun, you need to go to the New York City police and say, I want to carry a handgun, and they will basically tell you no. The only times they won't tell you no is if you are a former police officer, which is problematic in some ways, but they, they seem to be moderately liberal with giving former police officers licenses to carry handguns, or if you are a... Um, like a, a, a person who is carrying large amounts of cash as a messenger or the example that people often use is if you're a diamond dealer and carry around diamonds with you and people are going to, you expect to be targeted for violence, then you might be able to get a permit. But otherwise, no. And this is what's being challenged right now in the, the Supreme Court and is likely to be overturned. So there is a whole raft of, in the 19th century and early part of the 20th century, state and local restrictions on firearms. Um, some of which may you know, have been around for more than 100 years, but may not be around much longer. So what we see then, I, and I think this will be familiar to our listeners and certainly folks who've read about mm. the U.S. history, the broad span of the mm. U.S. history, is and this is unsurprising, isn't it? Because in the 19th century, the federal government is not that, it's not that large. It also doesn't intervene that much in the lives of individual citizens, Um Certainly not to the degree it will in the 20th century. Sure. So what we will see, therefore, and we'll get to this now, is there's a there there are certainly local restrictions. So the notion that everybody in America was always armed mm. in in the kind of prior to the 20th century and there were no restrictions is not true. No, but there those were tons restrictions, of restrictions. There were tons of restrictions, but those were local restrictions. And what we see in the 20th century is the uh, this will become more of a national issue at least in the middle decades of the 20th yeah. century and they're, and they're looking at the 20th century I, and uh, it's interesting that there are waves of, of federal gun legislation that they come in little spurts or spurts right and it's intriguing to, to sort of look at those so should we look at i guess the first ones in the in the 30s do you want to we talk yeah, about that sure i mean and what's interesting about this is so we get something called the national firearms act uh, which congress adopts in 1934 it's part of 
what uh, the Roosevelt FDR administration called the New Deal for Crime, hmm. um, which is an interesting turn of phrase. Uh, but but the interesting thing about this is it was done in response to an outrage, hmm. which was the St. Valentine's Day massacre in Chicago. Now, the folks who are familiar with the history of the United States in the 20s and 30s will know there's a whole series of notorious and in some cases um, both infamous and famous gangsters and bank robbers and things like this. Um, and some of these people become folk heroes like Pretty Boy Floyd and mm. Bonnie and Clyde and things like this. But there's also a worry because guns, particularly machine guns, are being sold and are circulating and are much more deadly yeah. than the guns of the 19th century. And the yes, National Firearms Act seeks to prohibit and control the trade in specific types of guns. So you want to yeah, say yeah. something? Yeah, so, I mean, I think, you know, the, the, the crime wave caused by prohibition is, right. is, is a big part of this. The technological changes in guns caused by the First World War and, and, and you know, at the end of the 19th and 20th century, the, the rise of machine guns, the rise of, of you know, weapons that, 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 that where one person can kill a whole bunch of people with a gun. And, it, you know, it makes guns very different than you know, the rifle musket from 1861 or the, you know, the flintlock from 1776. Um, so I think there is a... You know, or even a revolver with six shots in it. To be sure, right. Um, so this law uh, applied to machine guns. It applied to short-barreled shotguns yep. and rifles. Yep. Uh, and to silencers. And it placed a, a significant tax on them. It was $200. Um, which back then was a huge amount of money. It was the equivalent of, I think, like $4,000 today, which, you know, that makes you think twice about buying a particular item and required registration for certain kinds of guns. Uh, there was debate when they were debating this bill about including handguns, and they ended up not including handguns, but that was at least part of the discussion. There's a fascinating Supreme Court decision. Um, and again, this is one of the first court decisions about guns that comes as a response to that. But before that, oh. again, again, this is apropos of there, there being a spurt of legislation. Mm. So so I'll, I'll, we'll get to U.S. versus yeah. Miller in a second. But in 1938, we get something called the Federal Firearms oh, sure. Act, which is a, a kind of corollary or sequel to the National um, Firearms Act. Yeah. And that, interestingly, um, stipulates that dealers need a license. They need to keep records. Felons are excluded from... So we're starting to see the emergence of a regime. We're seeing um, the um, the features of what will subsequently become gun control. So I think those two things together, which are, it's part of New Deal legislation, mm. the, 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 the federal state is aggressive and interventionist in, in the period from the 1930s to the 1960s. And so... Uh, but but I think the, the, the FFA, as it's known, is an important kind of sequel to the National Firearms Act. Yeah. Uh, because this is the context against which, in 1939, we get this Supreme Court decision, U.S. versus Miller, taking yeah, away Yeah, okay, David. so the, the, the case uh, involves a guy named Jack Miller, who does not seem like a good guy. He was a bank robber. He had testified against the rest of his gang in court, which is probably not a wise thing for him to do for his life expectancy. Uh, but he was arrested for uh, interstate commerce of, of transporting a... a double-barreled 12-gauge shotgun that was less uh, than 18 inches in length in terms of the barrel uh, from Oklahoma to Arkansas. And um, 
the, the reason why the, the, the law had these restrictions on, on sort of short barrel things is those can be concealed, so you can use it to rob a bank. So we're back to concealed versus... versus conce yeah. Uh, and he um, you know, gets arrested for this. He says, look, I know I have a Second Amendment right to own a gun. And the government argues, no, you don't have a Second Amendment right because this is not a gun that is a military-type gun. Um, that it was not appropriate for the organized militia. And the Supreme Court agrees with them. Uh, the justice who wrote, uh, Justice uh, James Clark McReynolds says, um, the court cannot take judicial notice that a shotgun having a barrel less than 18 inches long has today any reasonable relation to the preservation or efficiency of a well-regulated militia, and therefore cannot say the Second Amendment guarantees to a citizen the right to keep and bear such a weapon. Which is intriguing because that's the sort of the flip side of some of the gun rights debates today. You know, some people who want to ban like AR-15 say, look, this is a military type weapon. People shouldn't have this. But in the in the United States versus Miller, the, the actual it hinges upon the fact you do have a right to a military weapon. The fact that this is not a military weapon is why it could be regulated. Uh, so it's a very interesting sort of juxtaposition to... Um, some of the current debates, but consequentially, lots of, of people who say, look, they should have access to an AR-15 today, point back to the Miller decision and say, look, the Supreme Court explicitly says I have a right to a military-style gun so I can participate in, you know, in the militia and uh, as, as the government may need me to. Um, so it's an intriguing uh, moment in terms of gun control legislation and, and, and jurisprudence on it. Yes, and, and that's the contemporary interpretation, but the, the long-standing interpretation of this ruling, mm -hmm. or a, a, an interpretation of this ruling, has been the emphasis on the militia and the emphasis on a collective yes. right to, 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 um, to, to, to arms. Um, and, and so this is slightly, but you're right, it leaves the door open to say, well, I need, and, and we've seen this recently in response to the war in Ukraine, where, mm. where the, 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 the people who advocated an individual right to own arms in the United States mm. have said, actually, you do need to have yeah. military-style weapons because you never know when a situation, when the Russians are coming or the Chinese and, the, you know, whoever they're afraid of. And, and so this, is, this has been turned on yeah. its head. But U.S. versus Miller, very much, I think, yeah. I read it as being in the collective tradition of, of I think of that's arms. right. It's intriguing with thinking about the jurisprudence on the Second Amendment is it's relatively thin compared yes. to many of our other, you know, you know, we're thinking about the First, First Amendment, Amendment has yeah. a huge amount, you know, and so even some of like, you know, in reasonable search and seizure, those things have a huge jurisprudence. This is actually one of the, you know, the, the Georgia case I mentioned from the Georgia Supreme Court, Miller, and then there's a handful of more recently, but there's not much, uh, relatively speaking. Why do you think that is? Um, I think in part because there aren't, there, obviously there aren't until the 20th century, there aren't, there aren't that many federal laws to challenge it in, um, and that, you know, the ways in which the Bill of Rights get applied to state doesn't really kick in until after the 14th Amendment and jurisprudence there. Um, so, uh, you know, most of the, I think the restrictions that are put in place before that, the state and local level, were very popular and... And courts were, were deferential to that. 
Um, thinking about those sort of waves of restrictions, I think the other big uh, wave, the next big wave is in 1968. Should we sort of contextualize that one? Sure. Well, there obviously had been a number of very uh, high-profile assassinations um, mm. during the 1960s, uh, including, uh, but not limited to, uh, President Kennedy, uh, Robert Kennedy, mm. and Martin Luther King. These were probably the three most important, yeah. most high-profile assassinations of that decade, but there were other political assassinations as well, particularly of civil rights leaders. Uh, and, and there was an attempt in 1968 to overhaul the earlier um, firearms legislation from the 1930s. Uh, and so the Gun Control Act, or the GCA, mm. was adopted in 1968. There's well, also some restrictions in the Omnibus Crime Control and Safe Streets Act in the same year. But there's, right. there's a, there's a yeah. package of things. Right? And they basically update that legislation, the National Firearms Act from the, from the 1930s and the, and the Federal Firearms Act. Um, they allow for age restrictions on owning handguns, so they're starting to look at handguns. Uh, guns have to have serial numbers as a result of this legislation. Uh, many of the things that are... Um, taken for granted as, as kind of good practice when it comes to gun control, I think, are introduced in this legislation. Is that a fair assessment, David? Um, yeah, so I think that, I mean, there's a couple of things that jump out to me. One is that I think the 21-year-old minimum age for buying a handgun, it's not, I mean, there's no minimum age for buying other kinds of guns. Right. So, I mean, I think that actually speaks to some of the more recent uh, debates about you can buy a AR-15 when you're 18, but you can't buy a, a handgun until you're 21, which... Doesn't make a lot of sense to a lot of people. Um, thinking about sort of the categories that I sort of outlined earlier, I mean, so you have restrictions on certain kinds of weapons. Like in the omnibus crime bill, they say you can't uh, possess a hand grenade. Sorry, Frank, that's uh, no longer you can. Yeah. Or uh, large bore, certain kinds of large bore ammunition. So there are restrictions on certain kinds of things. There's also some restrictions in the Gun Control Act about certain categories of people who can't have firearms. So they restrict felons from having firearms. They restrict people who have been certified as mentally ill from having firearms uh, and a few other categories of people who are prohibited from purchasing firearms. You know, and then there are restrictions about you know, certain kinds of ways in which guns can't be um, bought and sold. So uh, the John F. Kennedy assassin bought his gun by mail order. And they said, no, you can't buy guns by mail order. Uh, so there's certain kinds of restrictions about you know usage and when and where things. This, these measures, I think, were actually very very popular, especially given you know they were debated starting in in 1963 right after uh, John Kennedy's assassination, but then obviously 68 sort of pushed uh, pushed it over the uh, over the line. But even the NRA backed these measures. The vice president of the NRA says said. Uh, we do not think that any sane American who calls himself an American can object to placing into the bill the instrument which killed the president of the United States. You know, and so there, there it does seem to be even among, uh, you know, gun rights groups. And the NRA is, is a different kind of organization in the '60s, as it will become later. Uh, but they were not hostile to these kinds of, of restrictions in the 1960s. We start to see a change. In the 1980s. Mm. And what's interesting to me in, in having done some of the reading for this, David, is it's guns today, but you could pick another topic. Mm. What we see is this maps very nicely, this topic maps very nicely on 
to the history of the federal government mm. during the 20th century. So in the middle decades of the century, from the New Deal down to the 1960s, or 70s even, uh, we see an expansive state uh, federal government that's taking on a lot of responsibility, taking on, you know, intervening in individual citizens' lives in ways that are frankly unprecedented in American history. And then since the 1980s, really, we see a reaction against that. Now, it's, it's not entirely even. We're going to talk about the 1990s mm. in a second. But, you know, during the Reagan era and, and, and certainly in, in this century, um, when we've seen um, Republican governments in, in charge, there's been an effort to kind of curtail, mm. at least where gun rights are concerned, the, the federal government's uh, power or the federal government's intervention in people's lives. And this is part of a broader uh, movement against state power. Yeah, well, that, 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 That's a characteristic of, of the right in the United States. And not only federal government, but state government. Yes. Right? Yeah, yeah, so, so right. I mean, one of the things I think that happens um, is I you know, mentioned the NRA in 68 doesn't oppose these legislation. The NRA takes a, a, a significant turn in the 70s and 80s, where it becomes, it goes from being a, a organization for, for quote-unquote sportsmen, people who, who use guns for hunting and target shooting and stuff, but, but were about responsible gun ownership to being a gun advocacy and gun rights group. And that happens in a, there's a variety of moments in which that happens, but I think you're right, the culmination is a, point in the 1980s where you're having legislation not to to limit guns but actually to protect the rights of gun owners. Right. So in 1986 we get something adopted, Congress adopts something called the Firearm Owners Protection Act. And so the truth is in the name. Which yeah, is, yeah, exactly. it's, it's intended to protect firearms owners and their rights and so it prohibited the federal government at that point from keeping a nat national register of gun owners. It limited the number of inspections that the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms could conduct per year. I think it was limited to one per year in terms of looking at, at people who are selling guns. It allowed the sale of guns at gun shows, and this, is, this has gone on to become a major issue uh, and an ongoing um, source of concern for those who, who seek to uh, restrict gun sales in the United States to this day. And so what we're seeing is, and the, you know, as I say, that the, the 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 very name of the act is, is quite revealing, mm. that there's a there's a beginning of a turn in the 1980s, and we've been with it ever since, mm. really, um, to protect and preserve the rights of gun owners and the and and a and a stress on if we're back to those competing interpretations, a collective interpretation or an individual interpretation of the Second Amendment. Well, the emphasis is very much on preserving, protecting, and frankly expanding mm. the rights of individuals to, to uh, own, own firearms. And it's intriguing that you know, Reagan signed this, this bill, even though Reagan had been shot four years before, um, you know, that he had signed legislation in the 1960s when he was governor of California to limit public carry of weapons. But here, you know, both he and the Republican Party had moved pretty far on this issue between the, the 60s and the 80s about, about gun rights as a, as a priority issue for, for them. We need to talk about the 90s, and I'll turn yes. that over to you in a second. But what, interestingly, um, so we get the Firearm Owners Protection Act in 1986. You go forward 
20 years to 2005, uh, the Protection of Lawful Commerce Act mm. uh, prevents lawsuits against gun manufacturers in the aftermath of shootings. Uh, and so, again, um, the, the word protection appear, appears in the title. Uh, but, again, the, the, the commerce that's being protected, according to that act in 2005, is the commerce in, in, in firearms. Right. And so what we're seeing is uh, there's a definite turn uh, in, in the gun rights movement uh, to, to really protect and promote the individual right to firearms. Yeah. But it's not uniform because we get so we get another spate of reform in the 90s Do you want yeah to so there, there's there's period? there's the last the, the 90s is is i think the last time when we had significant federal firearms legislation and there's two bills that are passed um the 1993 uh, brady bill um we'll talk about that in a second and the 1994 assault weapons ban which was part of a bigger crime bill uh, the brady bill is named after james brady who was reagan's press secretary who was with Reagan shot when Reagan was shot, or in the 1981, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, it is uh, instituted a system of background checks. Initially, there was a five-day waiting period uh, for, for purchasing guns uh, until a national digital electronic system was put in place, and that was later put in place. Um, any idea who introduced the Brady Bill? Well, you told me I mean, before, before the episode, so, so, I, so I, I can Chuck pretend Schumer, I, don't I don't know, but I didn't know an hour ago. Yeah, okay. it, was, <laughs> it is Chuck Schumer, who is still the senator from New York, um, and, and is still very involved in gun control legislation. So it's intriguing that he's still involved in this bill that's now almost 30 years old. Uh, the other one is that the assault weapons ban, which bans, quote-unquote, assault weapons, and what's an assault weapon and what's not, is a, was and is a matter of some... Uh, debate uh, that was introduced by Diane Feinstein. So we have people who were leaders in the Senate then are still leaders in the Senate now, and I think they're still having some of the same debates about gun control. Um, how effective either of these bills were is a matter of some contention. There are lots of loopholes in the Brady Bill. You mentioned um, the loophole about gun shows where you can where you need to have background check if you go to buy it in a gun shop but if you buy it in a gun show you don't need to do a background check which um there's all kinds of ways in which you can have somebody else buy a gun for you so straw purchases was was a was a problem you can find somebody who doesn't has a clean record can then buy loads and loads of guns for people who, who don't um other kinds of loopholes uh, uh that, that exist in the brady bill the assault weapons ban um when they passed it, part of the, 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 the horse jockeying that went into passing that, they put in a 10-year sunsetting provision on that piece of legislation so that expired in 2004. Um, you know, and if you look at what's happened since 2004 in terms of mass shootings, a lot of them were using weapons that would have been uh, prohibited under the, the assault weapons ban. But the assault weapons ban, which is interesting because it's part of the very controversial Clinton crime bill yeah. of 1994, um, which is it's a complicated part of the legacy of both Bill and Hillary Clinton mm. um, and, and Joe Biden, who supported it, sure. uh, among others. Uh, but this aspect of it, the sunsetting, the sunset clause is... Brought it to an end, of course, mm. but the evidence suggests that between 1994 and 2004, it it's it was efficacious. Yeah, you know the assault weapons ban worked. 
Uh, and so, so advocates of gun control look back to that and say, you know, that that could be done why, again. Why, why can't we do that and again, it's in no. the, it's in the relatively recent past. Um, so, it's where a, are we now, David? Well, or, or it's, it, it's intriguing that that since nineteen ninety four, there's been until this thing, which may or may not pass the Senate, there's been nothing. I mean, nothing, nothing, as far as I can ascertain. In well, terms of, the NRA has now taken a position of no restrictions, right, and to oppose all restrictions. And the courts seem to to in some ways have agreed with them. There's the very important decision in two thousand eight, the DC versus Heller, uh, which was about having handguns in your home. And the Supreme Court said you have an individual right to have a handgun in your home for self-defense. And because that was involving D.C., there was a later decision that made it national uh, involving a similar piece of legislation in Illinois. There's the case which uh, we mentioned earlier that is should be announced any day now, any hour now, which may extend that beyond the home to an individual right to, to carry uh Yeah, so so just to to back up slightly Mm. or to slow down, so D.C. versus Heller in 2008 essentially changed the 70-year-old precedent established in the Miller case Mm. back in in 1939 and really gave an emphasis and recognized the individual right to own guns unconnected with military service or or any military um, connection to them. Mm. And... It overturns a ban on handguns in the District of Columbia. Crucially, it didn't overturn other restrictions that were in place. And what we're seeing now, you're right, in the 2010 McDonald versus Chicago case, it's it's applied beyond the District of Columbia. But the current case considered by the court, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, Challenges that New York law you mentioned, the 108-year-old... or Sullivan uh, Act, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the Sullivan Act. Um, And it seems likely that the Supreme Court is going to remove most restrictions on individual gun ownership. And and this goes hand-in-glove with with a number of states that are... have been taking away any restrictions they had on... Open carry, concealed carry, licenses, a variety of other measures that, that in, in many parts of the United States are now just being washed away so that, that you don't need to any, you know, you can go and buy a gun and then walk around with it or, you know, concealed or otherwise. Um, so, so we're headed in that direction. Um, Apologies, it seems like there's some construction occurring outside our recording studio. Yes, see. Like so, the, yeah, we're, um, we're, near, we're nearly done. So, Frank, the, you know, the, these, these bills were passed in the, the 90s, but there hasn't been anything since then. Why is it so hard to pass gun control? There seems to be overwhelming public support for some kinds of gun restrictions, but, but very little action. So why is it so hard? You might well ask, David, why it's so hard to pass any legislation in the United States at the moment. And I, I think, and we've talked about this in the past. Uh, you know, there there are a couple of structural reasons that have little to do with public opinion. You're right; the overwhelming majority of Americans favor stricter gun control laws, including gun owners. Yeah. Uh, however, uh, the the way the uh, Senate is structured, um, and the way the Senate operates, so of course, constitutionally. Each state has two senators, and that means that, um, and we've talked about this in the past, rural states in particular have a disproportionate 
amount of authority in the Senate, often sparsely populated rural states. You know, Wyoming with its half a million people mm. has as many senators as California with its 40 million people. Uh, and, and gun ownership is far more widespread in rural states, for example, than it is in more urban states mm. of the United States. And so it's not just that... Um, some Americans really like guns, those Americans are concentrated in particular places, and those places wield disproportionate power. When you realize, and then there's the way the Senate actually mm. operates, so not the constitutional setup, but the, you know, the, the filibuster, which we've stuff. talked about at length in previous episodes. So you need 60 senators to have meaningful legislation, which is why um, the outline, the agreed outline that came out last weekend is so important, because it includes 10 Republican senators. Uh, so that legislation has a chance of, of passing. But at the moment, between the filibuster and the existence of the Senate, it's very difficult to get things through. And so let me just give you a couple of figures to illustrate this. Only 30% of Americans own guns. This, that figure often surprises people outside mm. of the United States. It's a, Gun ownership is a minority practice in the United States. Because there are States. more guns than people. but There, there are, are more guns than people, but they're owned, they are not evenly distributed. In fact, they're not evenly distributed by region. It, only 16% of the people in the northeastern United States own guns, as opposed to 32% in the Midwest, 36% in the South, and 31% in the West. So, so gun ownership is not evenly distributed. Uh, but si similarly, in urban areas of the United States, fewer than 20% of the people own guns. It's only 19%. Well, I say only. It's 19%. Uh, whereas in rural areas, gun ownership is 46% of the population. So what we have is, so I think the gun, the gun, the the kind of pattern of gun ownership exacerbates the existing constitutional and political problems that currently um, afflict the United States. And then when you factor in the importance of the NRA as a lobby and the funding that they give to Republican candidates and things like this. Uh, there's a partisan aspect to this. Only 16% of Democrats own guns as opposed to 41% of Republicans. Still a minority of Republicans, however. Yeah. But if you look at the figures, and these are all from a Pew study that's several years old, so it's probably uh, it's from 2017, so these figures are probably have, have increased uh, uh, in recent years because uh, we know that there's, a, there's, there's been a surge of gun uh, sales since Joe Biden was elected. Mm. But what we see is the uh, gun ownership does not, or exacerbates, I think, the existing flaws in the American political system. Would you, would you agree I, I, with that? I would agree, and, and I think it seems as if, you know, the, the polarization we've seen more broadly in American politics over the past 10 years, uh, you know, is, is, is part and parcel of this. Uh, you know, the people who are voting to, to liberalize gun laws, you know, are, are many of the same people who are voting about abortion restrictions and, and there's 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 very little uh, middle ground you know and the numbers you point out are about individuals owning guns but if you bet it, bet if you were to, to look at households with guns I think some of these things may even be more um, bipolar in terms of their distribution you know there's you'd be you know in, in some communities you'd be hard-pressed to find community households that didn't have a gun um, well, that's right. I mean, so these figures are gun owner. Those figures I gave you by region, for example, were of gun ownership. 
they increase in the pew figures if you drill down on them. It's a very good study. Uh, as I said, it's from 2017, so it's, it's getting a little dated. Mm. Uh, but, you know, they, they, they also identify the number of people who live in a, ho- a home with a gun as opposed to owning a gun, and these figures increase, uh, although the, the general distribution yeah. is, is and, uh, indicative there. You know, you mentioned the, the, the data, but one of the intriguing things, if you look back over the past 50 years, is that the rate of gun ownership in the United States has gradually decreased over that time. But the number of guns has significantly increased. And so how do you sort of reconcile that? Fewer and fewer people are owning more and more guns. Um, and I think that's a, a and it's an very obviously very geographically and politically uh, focused areas where some of these things are. Yeah, so there are more than 400 million guns in the United States. There are only, I say only, there are 330 million, million people. people. Only thirty percent of Americans own guns. guns. So, so that thirty percent of the population own four hundred million guns. To be sure, and and and, uh, and yeah, uh, which I think and have a very different relationship to, to firearms than, than the seventy percent of people who, who don't. I think for the most part. So that's a. So I think there are structural problems. Uh, however. I always try to be a little more optimistic than you. That, that, it's that's a good. struggle with issues like this. I have to. Confess. And the past five years have made it hard to be optimistic <laughs> yeah, about many yeah, things. Yeah, but I agree. <laughs> but the you know the the outline deal that was agreed last weekend in the Senate gives some cause for hope. It's the first time in a generation, as you note, that there's been any meaningful uh, agreement on this. I think, as you rightly noted at the top of the show, there have been. What was it? Two hundred and fifty um, mass shootings. Two hundred and fifty mass shootings thus far this, this year. year. Right. So, so this is a huge problem in the United States. But occasionally, and I think Buffalo, followed closely by Uvalde, mm-hmm. um, have really shocked people um, and shocked politicians in particular. So we hoped something would be done after the Newtown shooting. Well, you know, you thought, right. okay, shooting up a primary school, that's got to be. That's got to be it, yeah. and it wasn't. Maybe Uvalde will signal change, and and it's what we're seeing here is with with the, with the outline deal in the Senate is moderate senators mm. wielding power yeah. because what we're not seeing is is the because of political polarization. It's not it's not the senators on either either side who are coming together. It's the senators in the middle. And maybe that offers some hope. Now, this might, for people who advocate gun control, and I'm very sympathetic to that outlook, uh, This some of these measures seem pretty weak. But we're talking about enhanced background checks uh, for buyers under 21. We're talking about an extended prohibition uh, so that domestic abusers uh, can be prevented from having guns, not just um, spouses, but also if you're in a relationship with somebody, mm. providing funding for red flag laws to allow for increased confiscations by the government. They're, they're, the assault weapons ban of 94 to 2004 indicates that small measures or what, things that seem to be relatively small can have an impact. And so any progress is progress. And the fact that these 20 seemingly centrist mm. senators have come together to uh, endorse a plan we are where we are, so yes. we have to take the victories we can. So, so let's hope that this is the sign yeah. of a kind of breakthrough in the uh, basic the the impasse that we've the mm. United States has been in because of political polarization. 
I wish I was as optimistic because I think it is kind of weak sauce as terms of, of, of legislation, you know, and thinking about the things we've talked it's been about. 30 years since the last legislation, David, you got to take what you can take. Oh, to be sure. Get. Um, you know, but thinking about the, the other examples from the 20th century, those are, you know, the, the big laws were passed as a response to particular acts of violence. Right. And one of the things that's striking about the, the everything since the 90s is we've had spectacular acts of violence, horrific acts of violence, without that commensurate response until now. You can think about all the mass shootings that we've experienced. You know, and... The sheer volume of them has... They, they all, yeah. Numbed people. It has. Well, and one of the strategies that the, the pro-gun lobby created, uh, actually, I think this they really crafted this after Columbine, was they said, okay, here's how we pivot on this. We say, look, we should not pat, we should not act hastily. We should, we should, we should. Now is not the time for action. There's the rhetoric. Don't politicize. Don't it. politicize it, and we and and we should wait. And and now is not the time for restrictions. And that was a rhetoric they adapted after Columbine that they've used over and over and over again. Whether that's the you know, Parkland Pulse nightclub named twenty five other cases. Name fifty, name hundreds of other cases. Like that's the the line that has been trotted out and has been remarkably effective at prohibit at preventing um, meaningful legislation. And it's but don't forget, seventy percent of Americans do not own guns, and more than seventy percent of seventy percent of Americans, including many gun owners, mm. favor gun control. Yes. And so, yes. And so it strikes me as a phenomenal political failure on some level, either of the system or of the individuals in it, that we that that kind of popular measure it doesn't come to fruition. But we will see. Hopefully, uh, you know, for those of us who are um, eager to to see fewer people killed with firearms, uh, that that we get some. Well, we'll see what happens. And the Supreme Court may make things much more difficult in the future, given see when they come down with. Yes. Yes. Uh, in fact, that seems likely, frankly. It but is. the Supreme Court, <laughs> the current Supreme Court, is increasingly it may increasingly find itself at odds with the American people. Uh, to be sure, right, uh, on a number of issues. But uh, we, that's uh, for another episode, maybe. Right. Time for last drop, Frank. What you got? I want to acknowledge uh, and thank one of our most loyal listeners, Ian from the Bay Area, who suggested an article to us. In fact, we. He suggested we use it as the basis of an episode, and we may well return to this, but it's an article by Tim Naftali, which appeared in the Atlantic, um, in online, uh, the Atlantic Magazine's website a couple of weeks ago, called The Death of Nonpartisan Presidential History, mm. and it concerns a proposal from the National Archives to effectively privatized presidential libraries uh, beginning with the George W. Bush Library hmm. which is uh, the foundation that, that uh, runs the all these, we've talked about these libraries in the hmm. past but the modern libraries always have a museum attached to them and the museum often is a monument to the president but the archive, the archival bit that oversees the papers of the president, are those are run by the National Archives and Record Administration, mm. and that is a nonpartisan uh, organization. But there is a proposal um, to uh, turn the Bush Library in Dallas over to 
the foundation, I don't know, I can't remember the name of the foundation, that yeah. runs, runs the museum. And Naftali, who ran the Reagan Library, Nixon Library, excuse me, not the Reagan mm -hmm. Library, the Nixon Library, uh, on behalf of the National Archives and Record Administration, uh, has written uh, a very powerful essay as to why this is a bad idea. It should be noted this is a bipartisan idea in the sense that the proposal um, uh, that's being considered by Congress was originated in the Obama administration, and, oh. and the and the Obama Library would like to do the same thing. And so uh, th this is not necessarily a um, this is a, it's a bad idea, but it's a bipartisan mm. bad <laughs> idea. And if history teaches us anything, it's that presidents and former presidents really want to control their legacies. Yes, and they always fail in doing so, and they should fail in doing so because history isn't beyond their control. But it's a very, beyond any of our yeah, control. Indeed. Uh, but it's, a, it's certainly beyond our, our ability, yeah. <laughs> as we demonstrate but, every week on this podcast. To be sure. But anyway, I want to thank Ian for, for calling this to our attention, and, and it's, an, it's an article that's uh, worth your consideration. What about you, David? What do you have? Uh, and give us something happy. You're, 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 you're even more uh, like, sort of gloomy than ever was, <laughs> because of our talk. Yeah, anyway, but uh, it's, <laughs> so I'm going to recommend an opera. Now, are you an opera guy? I'm not an opera guy. So. Uh, more than you, but no, okay, I'd call probably. myself an opera guy would be an exaggeration. Okay, so I'm not an opera guy, but, but so I want to recommend a new opera. This may be the first opera I've ever recommended. Uh, it's called Omar, uh, and it's just debuted uh, last week at an arts festival, and it may be spread more widely. But it's about uh, Omar Ibn Said, uh, who was an enslaved um, man who, uh, born in, in West Africa, Middle Passage, uh, enslaved in South Carolina, North Carolina, uh, but who was a devout Muslim uh, who had ac who access to the Quran, uh, was literate, and it's a opera about his life, uh, written in part by Rihanna Giddens, uh, formerly of the Carolina Chocolate Drops. Uh, so it's a, a interesting historical figure uh, with some really interesting music, um, and, and I'm looking forward. Hopefully, it'll be. Uh, touring around the world or something at some point so people can, can have access to it. But uh, it, it's a story that I think not many people know, but more people should, because he's a fascinating... When figure. So when was he enslaved in, in the uh, So he died during the Civil War. Right, so it's a 19th century story. story yeah, uh, but I think he was born in the 18th century, and so you know he's traversing the, you know, the first half of American history, uh, but through his very um, unusual, but also not unusual life. Right. Excellent. Okay. Well, that's and a happy issue. Yes, he is. I mean, he's got. There's. Yeah. I mean, it's a sad life. life but but uh, but yeah, opera and uplifting and, and some good fiddle music and whatnot. Great. And sorry for the uh, the construction noise, noise in the last kind of ten minutes. Uh, yes. There's there is a drill outside that is absolutely massive. In fact, I think they're looking for oil. Uh, <laughs> but anyway. All right. All right. Cheers, Cheers, David. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and dean international for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at Whiskey Rebel Pod and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes. 